Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and joining me as always is Associate Professor Rhiannon Evans, a classicist from La Trobe University. In this podcast, we will bring you a special interview with Lee Boardman, who played Tymon across both series of Rome. As a result, this interview contains spoilers, so if you haven't seen all of the show yet, you might want to skip over this for now. I'm planning on having a small party this evening, and I'll need you to... Are you wearing perfume? Just a dab. It's horrid. Horseshit suits you much better. Now, I need you to get more men to stand guard outside to greet my guests when they arrive. A party? Is that wise, given how things are? Perfume advice? Whatever next. I'm just saying, Pompey's mob is out for blood. It's best to lay low. Lay low? I'm not a lizard. I will not be intimidated. As you like. Cost you extra, though. You've been paid quite adequately already. More men cost more. Thank you, Lee, for joining us. Very welcome. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. I thought I'd kind of start with, um, I'd like to know how you got the role. How did you go about that? Did you seek it out? Did they seek you out? What did no, you know it about was, it? As with everything on my CV, everything sort of really decent. It came through a casting director who was kind of really on the way up at the time called Nina Gold. Nina now is the biggest casting director in the world. She's cast the Star Wars films. She cast mm. Game of Thrones. You know, she's like the biggest in the world. And Nina was really kind to me. And, uh, just really believed in me. And originally I, I auditioned for the role of, of Pullo um, okay. that Ray Stevenson ended up playing. But from day one, I was going in to meet the producers and they were saying, look, this Pullo guy, he's described as a giant. We're kind of looking for a giant and they didn't find the right person. And they kept getting me in to audition for this role. So it kind of came down to the wire and they were exhausting their search in terms of six foot six actors, you know, and then there was me at five foot 10. And they were kind of thinking, well, we're going to have to go with this guy. So all the way along, it was kind of like, am I going to be playing Polo? Am I not? And Polo for me was like, I got a really good handle on Polo. I thought Polo was like a kind of an Oliver Reed-esque character, a kind of drunken sort of comedic kind of, you know, and that's the way I would have played it. And at, at the last minute, they found Ray Stevenson. Yeah. They've been transparent with me all the way along. So I, I was kind of cool with it. And I was... I was doing a Shakespeare play at the time. Uh, I was playing Bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream for a, a really great director called Michael Grandage, who used to run the Donmar Warehouse in London. So I kept having to schlep to London from Sheffield. He ran uh, the theatre at Sheffield at the time. Casting came back and Nina said, look, you know, the guy is a giant. It's, it's written into the storyline that he's this big, powerful dude. He said, would you play this other role? Who's described as a, in the script, he was described as a goatee little man. <laughs> So, <laughs> so I tried not to take it too personally. Yeah. And uh, I said, yeah, sure. So by this point, I'd been in like eight times to see mm. them. And it was fine because Nina's always been so loyal. To this day, Nina's loyal and will get all the, as I say, all the great stuff on my CV comes through through Nina. Um, mm. So I ended up sort of playing that part. And it was such a kind of a, a buzz because we all had to sign a year's contract with a five-year option. 
as well. So it was wow. a big, it was a big commitment. And I thought originally this is going to be filmed in like Romania or like Budapest or you know somewhere in Eastern Europe or Sofia in Bulgaria. And they mm. said no, we're shooting at Chinichita in Rome. And we were all like, oh, well, they shot Ben Hur. And they said, <laughs> yeah, we want you to kind of soak it up. So that kick-started possibly the greatest two and a half years of my career it was just a seminal time for all of the actors in that show it was an incredible period you know mm -hmm. amazing but unfortunately there were a few things that we kind of had to do which was we had to sign a nudity clause in the contract which meant you would do nudity <laughs> Now, you know, <laughs> that's what you for a drink. <laughs> So, um, besides goatee little man, yeah. as you, I think this is the way you put it. Sorry, your words, not mine. Yeah, well, that's their true. words. That's, that was um, how it's described here. What else did you know about the character? Because the Jewish heritage seems to be baked in to Timon and yeah. becomes more and more relevant as the show goes on. But I kind of wonder did they have what happened to your character? envisioned from the start i think they might have done because i know that john millius who's one of the great writers in movie history john wrote mm. apocalypse now you know and that great speech in jaws that uss indianapolis uh speech that robert shaw speaks so i knew that john had written my storyline so they envisioned it over a six-year period when i got in there <laughs> in kind of hollywood terms i wasn't your sort of archetypal james purefoy sort of chiseled kind of you know, actor, but they kind of found me quite interesting uh, because I didn't look like your standard sort of, you know, Hollywood kind of person, really. Um, mm. So they, they used to just say, can we get a shot of you just like at the end of this scene, we're going to end on you and we want you to just to, we want to look at your face. So there was a lot <laughs> of that going on. And I thought they quite, I think they quite like me on this. So when it came to um, first season, I, they said, look, this character is like, it's, it's like six episodes, I think, out of the, the however many there were, I think there were 12 or 10. Well, you're in every second pretty much, yeah. Right. And uh, they said, but, you know, it's season two, we're going to kind of build it and John's writing the, the storyline for it. So, mm. yeah, it kind of went from there, but it was a ride. I tell you, it was a ride. The production yeah. values like that do not happen anymore. They, they literally don't. And I know that on Game of Thrones they had, because it's kind of a fantasy series, they had a lot of CGI, but we had barely any. You know, we had some green screen, mm. but they built... Rome, you know, they built it at Chinichita, which was astonishing. You can really tell, actually, as I've said it before, but my students watch Gladiator and they also watch HBO and we ask them to watch HBO Rome and they actually sometimes do projects on it. And they the special effects on Gladiator, even though it's Ridley Scott, they look really dated 20 years later. But HBO mm -hmm. Rome stands up because it's built. Yeah, and do you remember at the time, Rian, when, when when Gladiator came out? I mean, I remember watching those sort of vistas and those crowd scenes and thinking, wow, they're really pushing the envelope. And But it moves along so quickly, doesn't it, CGI? And I also know that Game of Thrones certainly wouldn't have happened if Rome would have continued because the plan was, and HBO admit that they kind of made an error with Rome because at the start of season two, it was troubled production in terms of just the logis logistically it was a nightmare season one and uh, they decided that they were going to just kind of like do a second season and that would be it and then the dvd of season one became the biggest selling dvd in history and mm. they realized that there was an appetite for it but they'd already made the decision to encapsulate five series in in the second season 
So they yeah. never planned to go further in time through Roman history because there's internet gossip that they were going to go further with the Antony and Cleopatra story. And, you yeah, know, they were. Augustus was going to become emperor if yeah. they'd continued. They were going to do that for about 10 years after we finished shooting season two. Bruno had a, has a feature film script of Rome that he was kind of desperately trying to get funded and was would kind of email periodically and say, look, you know, we're at this point with this. And that would happen now, you know, like with Deadwood, they made the feature. Mm. But then it was also kind of the concept of, of massive TV was so new, really, at that point. So I just think it was a little bit ahead of its curve in that respect. Yeah, I'm sure you would have <laughs> loved it. And yeah. it, but it is, I mean, now it's... It's obvious that there's there's great quality TV, but back then it was unusual, wasn't it? You, if you were going to do like real stuff, it would be on a film. TV yeah. was considered second best, and I think this was one of the things that changed that. In Absolutely. Terms of values. And I mean, I remember the cast was got together. We were taken out to we got we got this kind of a huge pack in the post of like all the stuff that we had to read and books that we had to read. And before you said, I can't remember the name of the book. <laughs> I've seen the cover of this book, this red book that we had to read. And I read all of these books about that period. But when we got out to Rome, we were taken on sort of various like school trips. I was like the social secretary on the show. But I would be always at the heart of anything that was sort of mischief that was going on. And on these trips that they took us on, they took us down to, um, down to the south. To Pompeii? Pompeii, yeah, yeah. and uh, we we kind of all got on this coach, and it was literally it was we were like I was on the back seat of the coach, like some naughty schoolboy, <laughs> and we, they took us there. With we drove down from Rome, so it took like three and a half hours to get down there. But then all the bits that were cordoned off, they allowed us to to um, you know they just basically pulled the rope and allowed us to kind of explore this mm. place. And at that point, we all thought, oh right, okay, this is really big and it's really real now. And then after that, they took us to the set. And the set was just the most authentic thing I've ever seen in my life, you know. Mm. Yeah. So how much of the set did you get to explore then? Do you have any distinct memories of, of being in certain parts of it? And, and you know, what was a favourite standout kind of thing? I think in season one, the start of season two, they built the Jewish quarter um, yeah. for, for my character, which was astonishing. It looked like a kind of a the way that I think kind of that Morocco kind of would have looked a couple of hundred years ago. It kind of looked like that for these sort of all these little alcoves with people selling things and food. For season one, when we first arrived on the set, they were explaining to us what they'd kind of done. And they had these huge stones. The, 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 the streets were kind of cobbled. And they had these... And we went to... Um, down south to, to Pompeii, and we, we could see that that was how the streets were. And they hand laid these huge stones that were over a foot long into the ground, and they also planted little weeds. They put a million of these stones down, literally wow. a million. And this set was so huge. The main vista, the main kind of street that we, we were shooting on most of the time, um, I think in season two, there's, there's the scene where I stab my brother to death and yeah, um, yeah. they're taking I can't remember which character is it is it Herod would it be Herod through the street yeah. and uh, there was a thousand extras on set that day now today that just wouldn't happen you know you'd probably mm. get 500 if you were a really big budget show but we had a thousand extras and I just remember seeing this this uh, procession of people coming down that road 
what was really odd about it was because we were playing the kind of the Jewish element of the show, even though there were a thousand people there and they were scenes that were, that were, that were kind of centering on, on Nigel Lindsay and myself, we kind of felt ignored. We felt invisible, you know, <laughs> and I, I did feel that on that set as, as time. And, and I went in deep under deep cover for that job. I mean, I really did. I was like kind of living it and breathing it. I felt like an outsider, you know, yeah. like an outsider. And, and that's how I imagined the Jewish population felt at that, that period, you know, ignored and kind of like you went unseen. It felt like that. I wondered if you felt the weight of responsibility from that character because you, your character was essentially the only window that we got into a, a very, what was a very ethnically diverse Roman Empire, maybe not as much as it would be later on. But um, yeah, your character was essentially the only non-Roman. Um, it was. So you, you were the representative of, ethnic, of ethnicity in the Roman Empire at the time. <laughs> and and, I, and I, it, like the character kind of became a little bit of a poster boy for, for Jewish organisations in America. Um, mm. And I felt this huge weight of responsibility because I'm not Jewish, you know, and Nigel, who played my brother, is Jewish. So I had to kind of learn about all of that. And I, I always wondered whether they would... That might not happen now that you would get cast in that role, you know, if you weren't Jewish. But it, it yeah. did back then because they felt like the essence of it or whatever was something that I had about me. But the responsibility to to accurately just learn about the Jewish faith was and, and to, to, to learn some Hebrew, it was a huge sort of source of panic and fear for me because you're aware that if you kind of, you know, do a misstep, millions of people are going to watch it and go, you know, and are going to be popped out of the storyline and popped out of the suspension of disbelief. Um, mm -hmm. Now you'd be trending on Twitter. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Certain <laughs> scenes might have been trending on Twitter. And, you know, we don't, nobody wants to see that. Um, <laughs> so I, I've, al I've also read that if I realize this is all speculation, if there was a third series, then it was going to focus partly on you back in Judea. Do you know if that's true or is that just people mm, yeah. making things up? No, I was would you have met Jesus? Well. Hey, who knows? This is what Bruno said. So that would have been. I mean, we were devastated when it ended. As an actor, you would never have that experience of. You would have that experience in Eastern Europe. You would not have that experience. You know, doing a series, a Roman series that was being shot in Rome. There was another series at the time, if I remember, called Empire, mm. that was kind of like the low budget version of, <laughs> of Rome, but that was shot in Eastern <laughs> Europe. You know, those guys weren't. I had pals on that show. And they yeah. weren't getting the opportunity. They were like, you're in Rome. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you're, mm -hmm. you're getting to live in a villa in Rome. <laughs> so great. The show, the last scene of your, of your show was you leaving Rome quite suddenly for Judea. The running theory is that you were going to bump into Jesus at some point in the show. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's fair to say that my exit from the series, they were kind of like, oh, we've got mm -hmm. all these loose ends to tie up it felt a lot like that and they kind of said you know we're just, we've just got to tie up all of these storylines so I kind of left pushing a card <laughs> I was like pushing this, this cart with the family schlepping sort of alongside me from an acting perspective it was the most kind of uh, indulgent time I've ever had because mm. I can't remember what episode it was in I don't know if it was Passover I don't know if it was that one or whether it was um it was the one that Adam Davidson, a director called Adam Davidson, directed, who was this uh, American guy who won an Oscar in 1990 for this short film. And he was like this young kind of 
brilliant director, but it was incredibly arduous. The shoot was incredibly arduous. Mm. And he would kind of push you and push you and push you. And um, we would shoot one scene a day. You know, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> so you'd have a whole day. And I remember when Alan Coulter, who directed a lot of The Sopranos, came in to direct. We had a scene where, I can't remember what episode this, but I arrived back from killing... Uh, this young guy whose name escapes me, who who actually, for anybody who's listening, was the guy who played Lady Gaga's manager in uh, A Star Is Born. It's Rafi Gavron. And he was like 15, 16 years old at the time. And he was a very badly behaved young man, I have to say. I stab him and, and put him down the sewer and then arrive home and my brother's there. And uh, the scene with my brother, which was, it was one of the great experiences as an actor because we were just all about getting the little nuances right in that scene and Alan Coulter is such a wonderful director and I think the temptation is for actors when you're doing kind of like five six scenes a day there's a kind of shorthand that actors will play so when I arrive back in the room and see my brother for the first time and I have blood all down my front there's a temptation from an acting perspective if you're trying to get through it to kind of give a little wink to the audience to sort of go oh right I feel really awkward and really uncomfortable that that he's here and play the awkwardness and Alan Coulter said to me, this was how kind of much time we had. He said, what, what would you do if, if you were in this situation and you arrived back and you'd not seen your brother for 20 years and you had blood all up your top, he's eating with your family, what, how would you react? And I said, I'd probably just try to overcompensate and, and cover up and that everything's fine. And he went, that's exactly what, do that, do that. And it was such a lovely reminder for an actor to, to always kind of, do what human beings do in life, which is there's all the subtext going underneath, but we kind of, you know, we cover it up. Whereas the temptation usually would be to to play the actual thing, you know, of mm. I feel uncomfortable. It was about everything's fine, you know, it's all good. So it was it was a glorious kind of period that because ever since then, even on big budget stuff that I've done, you've got to rock through it. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. clearly enjoyed it, but you said the production in the first series was was difficult. So can you tell us more about that? Is that okay? Yeah. I mean, we, we all knew that I knew that I had this um, this naked scene coming up, you know. Oh, so that wasn't the first scene you filmed? It, <laughs> it was one of the first scenes, you know. Um, yeah. It, it, was, it was amongst the first scenes. We started shooting in the March of 2004, I think, and I think that was slated for May. You know, and I, I sort of circled it on my schedule. <laughs> I've, I've got to do that by then. And I had to get to know Polly as well, Polly Walker, who played Atia. She's um, brilliant. She's a great actor. And Polly yeah. and I became great mates. But that day, Michael Apted is directing, you know, who at, at that point had just come off. I think he had he done the Bond. I don't know if he'd done the Bond film. He but- would have done one of the up films. Yeah, he'd, he'd done he'd done loads of the the seven ups and all of that, and he was like this, mm. this gargantuan director. He directed was directing the first three episodes, and um, I mean, can I this podcast is this quite is this adult content? This yeah, podcast, this we're oral? talking about Rome. <laughs> right, <laughs> okay. Well, um, I don't mind telling you that. Yeah, go. Um, in between scenes, I was literally like in a state of just panic of like. I've got to just at some point I had these this this thing that April, the costume designer, who was brilliant at design, which was like these two bondage leather straps across, <laughs> across my chest. And um I said at some point I've got I've got to take my shorts off. I've got, I've got to do it. 
a pair of Calvin Kleins on. I thought they've got to come off at some point. And then when I got on set, I, I quickly realized it was supposed to be a closed set. But there were suddenly all of these Italian kind of uh, crew members <laughs> with a screwdriver kind of going like that. <laughs> that they were necessary. You know? This light bulb has to be changed right I, now. There was a lot of that going on. I thought, this isn't a closed set at all. And my heart went out to Polly at this point, you know, because nobody wanted to look at me. But I think Polly was completely exposed in, in those scenes. She had to do them throughout. And it, it kind of came to it. It came to the point where the, the shorts had to come off. And I don't mind telling you that at one point I'm lying on the bed with a cold sweat. And um, I'm just trying to make my penis look bigger. I'm just pulling it to sort of make it look... <laughs> Look, look more so, you know, I'm literally you, lying there. You, you're that. giving it the pullo. Exactly, I'm giving it a pullo. And, uh, but not in a kind of a, you know, I'm trying to disguise, just kind of, to, just just try to sort of like, you know, make things appear um, a little bit better. And uh, at one point, the uh, Marco Pontecorvo, the, the, the cinematographer, who's one of the great cinematographers, was straddling me, getting a light reading. And I'm sat underneath him in a cold sweat, just fiddling just to try and sort of uh, and, and Michael Apted saunters over at that point it was the most bizarre so there's the three of us and I'm just sort of lying there naked and uh, all I could think to say to uh, Michael Apted was this awkward pause was and to think I used to work in a hardware store <laughs> you know, so, I'm sort of mortifying um, and, then I, and then I knew I knew when I went to do ADR like a year later, I saw Billy Budd, the, the brilliantly named Billy Budd, who was the military advisor in Rome. And he'd been in the studio, and I was going to go and loop some of my dialogue. And I was mm. looping those episodes. We were in Camden Town in North London, and I, I heard Billy shout, Oi, Lee! And I looked round and saw him coming out of the studio, and he went, Mate, you're nuts. They're like grapefruits. <laughs> I just thought, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it, didn't make it, it didn't make it to the final cut. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah so not- after that i think decided that we don't want to see any more of that you know so i was i was off the hook after that yeah <laughs> it's not a glamorous business when you describe it like this <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, to th- and to think polly walker got all the attention in that scene That's just- i know that was fine by me do you know what we, was, we were so kind of um i was so respectful of paul during that scene because i knew mm. how how mortifying it was. And, and, and this was in the morning. And in the afternoon, she had to do a naked scene with James Purefoy. She had this whole day of like wow, awful yeah. scenes. So in the final cut, they wanted me to kind of be all over her. And I knew how she was kind of feeling about these scenes. So I thought, I'm not going to do it. So I decided I was going to play the scene in a state of ecstasy with my arms kind of wide open. Mm. Um, but they intercut later somebody else's not my hands somebody else's hands feeling somebody else's ass during the scene and that never happened so that was like a little cut that the hbo put because they'd obviously watched it and gone now we want it kind of much more kind of raunchy um but that was those were the days when you know it was prior to the me too movement and all all bets were off you know um that would never happen anymore it just wouldn't i know that on game of thrones they didn't they didn't have their body doubles you know it was easy for those guys Mm, Well, your character spends most of their scenes, I think, in the first season with Atia. Yeah. So it must have been really quite a unique opportunity and good to work across Polly Walker so much and to have those scenes with her. 
It, it was. Paul's, Paul's great. Paul, and Paul is from the same part of the world that I'm from. Paul's from Warrington in Cheshire. So we just kind of quickly developed a, a, a really lovely shorthand and would kind of be messing about all the time. And sometimes I would say to him before a take, look, in this take, you have to do, even if it's only for a second, one second of kind of robotics in the scene. You've got to, you've got to move in just some way that's just a slight kind of robotic sort of sort of way and I'd force her to do these things <laughs> and she would do them as well and she'd be like why you, I can't believe I'm doing this why are you why are you in my ear like this she was I'm going to be watching for those now <laughs> yeah, I know did they manage to cut them out that well-known robotic out, yeah. from ancient Rome <laughs> <laughs> but it was um it was glorious we all used to socialize together as well you know and we had the whole city of Rome to do it in and like mm. Ken Cranham, who played Pompey, Ken's a really good pal of mine now. And we met on that show. He and I and Steve Schill, the director, would go to Umbria. We'd get the train to Umbria because Ken would never fly to Rome. He just decided he didn't want to fly. So Ken lives in Highbury in North London. So mm. Ken's journey to, to set every single time he came out was he would leave his house in Highbury. <laughs> he would walk to Highbury and Islington tube station. Right. He would then get off the tube at King's Cross. He would get on the Paris. Then he would get on a train from Paris to Milan. And he would take a really great bottle of red wine with him so that he could, while he was going through the Alps, he would feel the sort of the cold air coming in through the aircon in the Alps. He'd sit there with his glass of red wine. And then at Milan, he would get a train from Milan to Rome because he loved traveling in that way so you know we went all over we went to like spoleto we went to and he would source great restaurants and we would but we'd be out every night we'd be out every so night. you wanted to rub it into caesar and cross the rubicon there you go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly i do think that it's impeccably cast the whole series and that's one of its great strengths but you know what? Uh, although i could you see you as polo I think, I think yeah, I mean, it would have been, been different. It would have been different, you know. But um, Nina Gold was just, it is a casting genius. She is. She's amazing. And when she puts these casts together, you just kind of think, what? And, and uh, Lindsay Duncan, you know, um, mm. who so I had to spend several days flogging. Mm. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, that was just like, but these great actors, you know, that, mm. and I remember Lindsay was a real lesson to me. Lindsay's a big star, you know, and a very, very respected actor. And she spent days literally hung by her her wrists. And she never complained. And I was having a flogger with this thing all day long. And she just was, she was su such a pro. I mean, she never complained. And she got me into, um, she got me into rap music, uh, Lindsay Duncan. She did. She said, you've got to listen to this band, they're called Streets. And, she said, and I was like, really? And she went, yeah, you go, listen to this. And I got, I got really into it and then got really into rap music after that. So she was like a real kind of important character in, in my <laughs> development as an actor. I would not have guessed that Lindsay Duncan would be into rap. That's what I, I know. She's, she's got a classic taste. She's amazing. She's an amazing woman. Honestly, she really is. And Kieran Hines as well was, was somebody that I really looked up to. Kieran's such a great bloke. As an example to everybody else, you know, they knew how to behave. We were very, very blessed to have all of them, really. Mm -hmm. So who did you uh, not work with that you wish that you worked more with? I think the kid, Kevin. Yeah. Um, Kevin and I would have loved to have done a lot more stuff together. 
Yeah, Ray as well. I think they just wondered how they could kind of lodge Tymon into that little it's kind of twosome. It would have been really, really difficult. Kieran, I would have loved to have worked with Kieran, but you know, Tymon would never have <laughs> you know, within a thousand feet of uh, of Caesar. I would have loved to have worked with Tobias as Brutus. Tobias is uh, is a good pal of mine. But I just didn't have anything directly to do with uh, Tobias's character. But mm. um, he, re- he really should have taken his revenge for what you did to his mum. Yeah, <laughs> just, I know. Just to Lindsay Duncan. I know. <laughs> My goodness me, because they were Adam Davidson shoots. You know, they were like fifteen hours of just. You know, it was 110 degrees. You know, they had to mm. call it in one day. It was so hot on set, and um, we had these six foot long tanks that were that were outside that were like torpedoes basically and it was so hot that the end blew on one of them so it literally shot like a torpedo through the set about a foot off the ground but it went about 150 meters and they went we're gonna have to call it in so it was so hot and then we had all of these burning cauldrons around us so at times it was incredibly tough but adam liked to kind of ramp it up even more because he would get your exhaustion and at times fury you know on, on mm. camera so it's a different way of working. Americans work in a very different way. <laughs> yeah, they don't really believe Not in like taking in UK, rests, yeah, do they? Yeah. No. no. Well, it does remind me, I, I did my PhD in America, and when I arrived, I got to the department and I said, oh, where's the tea room? And one of the lecturers said to me, Americans don't have tea breaks. <laughs> I know. <laughs> there is one. Astonishing. So they would, they would work you to death, but then, you know, you got craft services, which we don't get in the UK, mm. which is like a running buffet all the time with chefs. Mm. So you go, can I just get, you can think of anything to get and they'll, they'll get it for you. So <laughs> they got it right in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast of HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith. And my thanks to our special guest today, Lee Boardman. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and please leave a review. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow us on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy. Lee Boardman is at Lee Boardman. And the podcast is at Rome Podcast. Until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic. And thanks for listening. That old bitch herself, eh? Must be good to be home. What is it, two years you've been gone? You still fucking my mother? (laughs) (laughs) Or when she'll have me. That would explain your excessive familiarity. Excuse me. It's all right. I was merely curious, and you're correct. It does feel good to be home.